when uh, I came to Sherwood, we were in the what is now our fellowship center, and that was a worship center, and it had these big, heavy wooden doors on it. And there was one that didn't open real easy, and it creaked really bad when it opened. Of course, the members knew that, so the members never used that door. But if somebody came in that door, they were typically a visitor, and we'd always have people that'd do this. They'd be sitting here, looking ahead, and all of a sudden you hear, and they knew it, and everybody turned around to look at them. That really made people feel comfortable. I, I've been around a long time, and I've spoken in a lot of churches, and I've met literally thousands of pastors. The number one concern I hear from those pastors is our people don't care about revival and they don't care about evangelism. They, they don't care about lost people and they don't care about the church. Or our church is dying and it's getting older and we don't have any children, we don't have any young people. I cannot tell you how many churches I've been in where the pastor will say, or he's come to refresh, and he will say, we have no children in the nursery. We have no preschoolers. We have no young people. And I think that church forgot why they were there. They forgot their purpose. I, I talk to other pastors and they say, you know, I'm just trying to get my church into the 19th century. Not the 20th century, they're just trying to get them into the 19th century. They, they, they don't want to do anything different. They don't want to change anything. I've got a friend of mine that pastored a church in this area, and they didn't like it because he came in and said, we're not going to sing the doxology every Sunday. They didn't like it. As if singing the doxology every Sunday somehow brings the glory of God. Can I tell you something? You can do something every Sunday, and you don't even think about it when you do it anymore. And it's no longer a doxology. It is a cursing of God because you're singing something that's not in your heart. I want you to listen to this quote. It's going to come up on the screen from a pastor. The bottom line is that my church really doesn't want to grow. It would be hard adjusting to any new people. Some of them would want to be leaders and all the good positions are taken. Starting new teaching units is painful, and splitting classes always offends someone. That can never be us. It cannot be us. It cannot be your class. It cannot be you. It cannot be me. Because if we don't change, we will lose our community. If we don't do what we have to do to fulfill the Great Commission, we will lose our community. And one day we will wake up and there will be no vital, vibrant church because every church has decided just hold the fort and pray for Jesus to come before the world overruns us. That is not what God called us to do. Now, I do have some good news, and I think it is actually good news because the church I grew up in, uh, it was on the main drag of town. There were two churches that you joined. If you moved to that town, you joined First Baptist or you joined Calvary. Because First Baptist and Calvary had the most businessmen in it. And when you joined there, it would help your business. 
And it was cultural Christianity. And those guys would drop their kids off at church and then they'd go down to the Rexall drugstore and they'd drink coffee and smoke cigarettes during Sunday school. And then they'd smoke one more before they walked in to take up the offering. And then they'd decide we ought to be deacons. I mean, it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. The good news is that is changing in America. And we're not dealing so much with cultural religion, cultural Christianity that says joining a church will help you out. What we're dealing with is an increasingly secular society where it's easy for us to say there is a difference between us and the world. There is an option. You don't have to live with a secular worldview. You don't have to live with a there's this life and then it's over. And so we have a better opportunity actually to share the uniqueness of the difference of Christ in the world that we live in today. But to do that, we have to be a New Testament church, not just a building with a sign on it, but a New Testament church. The word church in the Greek means ekklesia, the called out ones, called out of the world. And so let me give you a definition of a New Testament church. A New Testament church is bathed in prayer, empowered by the Holy Spirit, worships the living Lord, grows together, serves others, and cares for a lost world. And I believe that's a good order. It's bathed in prayer. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because if there's not prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit, then our worship is not going to be real. Our growth is not going to be healthy. Our serving is going to be self-centered. And we're really not going to care for a lost world. Now, anytime you start talking about reaching people, there's always somebody. There's always one. Every, every church has one. It's like Warren Wiersbe said, there's always somebody in a church that says, as long as I'm a member of this church, there will never be unity on anything. There's always one. And there's always somebody say, well, you're starting to talk about reaching people for Christ and, and new people coming and everything. You're just talking about numbers. Yes, I am. I certainly am. I'm talking about numbers. I know you don't worry about numbers. I know you never look at your check to see if there are any numbers on it. I, never, I know you never go to your mailbox and find a letter that's got the next address on it and go, hmm, they got the wrong number at the post office on this mail. I know you don't worry about numbers. That's why you don't care if your team wins or not because numbers don't matter as long as they try hard. That's why you buy season tickets to football games and, and to baseball games. It doesn't matter if the, if the Braves score any runs. They're just sincere. Well, we all care about numbers. God cares about it. He wrote a book and called it Numbers. I mean, he cares about it. He told us how many disciples there were. He didn't, the, the Gospels don't say, and there were a bunch of guys that followed Jesus around. No, it says there were 12. It says there were 12. Well, he, he's speaking on the side of a hill. It says 5,000 men plus women and children. He, he didn't just say, there's a big crowd, because a big crowd, depending on where you grow up, could be 30 people. But he says 5,000 plus women and children. And then it says they had 12 baskets left over, specific number of baskets. Not, they came into the kitchen, brought a little styrofoam box, we took it home and had it for dessert later on. No, numbers were there. 
How many fish they caught in John 21? Throw the net on this side. And they, how many, exact number of fish that they caught? God is concerned about numbers. Why? Because numbers are people. So I, I don't care about numbers. Okay, all right. Let, let me just make a suggestion. I'll just help you out. Just tear up your Social Security card, and when they send you your check, when you're 65, send it back because you don't need it because in the government, you're a number. So since you've been paying all that in and numbers don't matter, just tear it up. No numbers count. You know why numbers count? Because numbers are people. Social Security may give you a number, but God gave you a name. The world may say you're a number, but God says you're a name. And we can look at the world and just get lost in the number. Seven billion people and get lost in the numbers, but every one of those people has a name. And they have an eternal destiny. Acts says they were adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Acts 5.14, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Now we're going to be in Acts 8, 9, and 10. These are incredible chapters because every chapter either shatters a prejudice or a preconceived idea about the way God works. And this happened in the midst of persecution. Acts chapter 8, great persecution is growing because of the death of uh, of, of Stephen and the word great there means mega mega persecution or vicious persecution they weren't just putting signs up in the neighborhood saying no soliciting or they weren't just saying no thank you I'm not interested there was a vicious widespread aggressive response to what God was doing in the church but if you read Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9 the key characters there are lay people, not preachers. The key people that are being used, this is a lay-led evangelism movement that is going on in the early church. God loves people. Now let's look at the people that are mentioned here. First of all, there's the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. He's an African. He has a position of power and prestige. Verse 27, there was an Ethiopian eunuch a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all her treasure. This is a guy that's got serious responsibilities. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go and join this chariot. Now Philip had been in Samaria preaching, holding an, an evangelistic crusade, and God was blessing but God said, leave there and go find this person. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Here's a man searching for meaning. He's searching for purpose. He doesn't understand the Bible. It doesn't make sense to him. He knows he's supposed to figure out something from this. He knows there's some truth here, but he doesn't understand what it says. And here we've got Philip leaving this crowd and going and finding one. This is a one-on-one -on -one conversation. A one-on-one -on -one conversation between a believer 
and a lost person. Now, Philip was in Samaria. He was a deacon who was an effective evangelist, and he did three things while he's in Samaria. First of all, he preached Jesus, Acts chapter 8 and verse 5. He didn't preach politics. He didn't tell people how to vote. He didn't tell people what the social issues were of the day, although I'm sure they were important. He preached Jesus. He began proclaiming Christ to them. He preached with power, Acts chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. There was great power on him as the gospel spread and lives were changed. He preached that Jesus sets captives free, verse 8. There was much rejoicing in that city. Can I tell you, it would have been easy to stay in Samaria where there were great results. But he was sent out and he didn't even know where he was going. And he did not know who he was going to talk to, but he obeyed God. And because one person, one believer, obeyed God to share their faith, an Ethiopian was saved. Can I give you the significance of that? The roots of the church in Ethiopia go back to the first century. An African came to Christ, took the gospel back to his nation of Ethiopia, and it spread, and they traced their roots as the church for 2,000 years back to this one man. Who you share with matters. What you do matters. You never know who's going to be used of God. Now, then there's a religious who are lost, Acts chapter 9. That's Saul. Now, none of us in this room, all of us in this room, are not equal as far as religion to Saul. I mean, Saul is devout. He's a Jew of Jews. He, he is trained in the school of Gamaliel. I mean, he is the top of the chain. He's, he would have the equivalent of multiple PhDs. He's an intelligent, brilliant intellectual who can argue with the best of them. He's sincere. He's orthodox. He's memorized the first five books, but he's persecuting God's people. It's the most famous conversion in all of history. Acts 9 and verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, who, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now that story is told three times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, Luke tells it. Acts chapter 22 and chapter 26, Paul is sharing his testimony and he is telling this story about how God changed his life. And for the rest of his life, he was pursued either by the Judaizers or the Gnostics or the Jews who hated that he had become a messenger of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of prophecy. Now this one, there's not a human instrument. Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. Jesus himself initiates the conversation. By the way, there's a lot of that going on in the world today. In places where it's very difficult to get the gospel. Muslims are coming to Christ because they're having dreams of someone in a white robe that walks up to them and says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Follow me. And it's radically changing, and they're looking for believers to tell them what that means. Let me give you a thought here that you need to 
really chew on for a while. The one you consider an enemy, God might consider a chosen instrument. The one you consider an enemy, God might consider a chosen instrument. You ever said something like this? God will never use that person. There's no hope for that person. That person will never be saved. That person will never come to Christ. There's no hope for them. There's no hope for him. There's no hope for her. They've gone too far. They've done too much. God doesn't have enough grace to just give up on them. Just forget it. Never give up on anybody. Even an enemy. Even someone who hates you or despises you for your faith. God could change their lives. Then there's the sincere but not saved in Acts chapter 10. That's the Roman centurion. Chapter 10 and verse 1. Here's a guy. He's an interesting guy. Now there was a man of Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. A devout man. Now look at how seriously this guy is about God. And yet, he needs Jesus. A devout man and one who feared God and all his household, who gave many alms, to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. And about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision of an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? Now, Paul, in the previous chapter, had said, who are you? Cornelius says, what is it? Cornelius was actually closer than Paul was to truth. And an angel appears to him and says, what is it? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. So here's a guy who's good, who's religious, but he's unfulfilled. And he's good, he's religious, he's unfulfilled. He's a Roman centurion, he's an Italian cohort. Let's just say that Cornelius is a good old boy that's a real patriot. I mean, he probably had a sticker of the Roman flag on the back of his chariot. And whatever he celebrated, he always stood out. I mean, he was a Lee, Lee Greenwood believer. You know, God bless the USA. I mean, there are people that won't shed a tear for a lost person, start crying every time Lee Greenwood sings. Of course, as old as he is, I cry when he sings too. He's in some. He, he's in a key. He just doesn't know what it is. But uh, oh, we love to sing "God Bless America." Everybody stands up in a baseball game and sings "God Bless America." <clears throat> Terry and I took our girls a few years ago to a Yankees game. Not that I'm a Yankees fan, but I feel like every American ought to go once to see how the other half lives. And so uh, I went to a Yankees Boston Red Sox game. Now you want to talk about? a rivalry. So we sat in the cheapest seats we could get up in the nosebleed section. By the seventh inning, half the people in our section had been arrested or thrown out. They were all drunk. They were three sheets to the wind. They were cussing. They were yelling. They were screaming. They were fighting with each other. They were sitting in seats that weren't their own. The cops were coming in. A woman slapped a cop. They put her in handcuffs, took her out. But at the seventh inning, with what was left in the room, at the seventh inning, everybody said, God bless America. And I'm, I'm just thinking, you have got to be kidding me. 
I mean, they're in their 12th beer and one bag of popcorn, and they're singing God Bless America. You know what? They think they're good people, but they're lost. They're lost. You know, we have a lot of people that are conservatives, and we complain about not having a Bible in school, but we don't open it in our homes. We complain about not having prayer in school, but we don't pray over our meal when we're in a restaurant because we don't want anybody to know who we are. We never ask the waitress how we can pray for them. But, you know, 4th of July, we take off, and we celebrate, and we shoot fireworks, and we have a good time. And that's fine. I mean, I want to be patriotic. My dad, you know, fought in World War II. My father-in-law was a prisoner of war for two and a half years in Korea, left for dead in a Chinese death camp for three weeks because they threw him in there to die with a bunch of dead bodies because they couldn't bury them until the spring. And he laid in there until they finally realized he wasn't going to die, and he came out. Lived the last part of his life with post-traumatic stress syndrome. I want to tell you something. I, I, I've got a father-in-law and a father who love their country. And they taught me to love it. But I don't love this country more than I love Jesus. Because this country is not going to get anybody to heaven. This country provides an opportunity to talk to people about Jesus that people in many parts of the world don't have, which makes us have greater responsibility about the freedoms that we have. Not to worship the flag, but to worship the Father and what he's done for us. So here's the centurion. God uses people. Let's look at some guidelines real quick. First of all, salvation from beginning to end is of God. John 6, 4, no one can come to me unless the Father sent, who sent me draws him. It's not my job to save the lost. It's my job to share the gospel. Salvation from beginning to end. I've never won anybody to Jesus, nor have you. You've been a tool used by God to see somebody come to Christ. Secondly, God's word is a clear message, 2 Peter 3, 9. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's not my job to figure out who's saved and who's lost. My job is simply to be faithful to sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the Spirit uses the Word to convict of sin. He doesn't use me telling little sad stories. You know, I remember we always had an evangelist come in our church. He'd always tell a sad story, and that's what he used to try to get people to Christ. Never preach the Bible. God uses the word. What does Philip do? He preaches the scripture. There's a, there's a lamb that was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. He says, this is who Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about Jesus, who was just crucified, who rose from the grave. You want to know what Isaiah is talking about? He's talking about the Messiah. All people without Christ are lost. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means everybody you meet is lost or saved. When the Titanic sunk, they posted a list in New York City. They had two columns, saved and lost. That's really it. Everybody is saved or lost. Your neighbors, your work associates, your family members, your children, your parents, your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, your friends, whoever they are. And we forget sometimes that people are lost without Christ. If they die without Christ, there's no do-over. There's no second chance. God has a plan to use people. God has a plan to use people. Who, who did God use in your life? 
Was it a Sunday school teacher? Was it a minister? Was it a friend? Was it somebody at work? Was it somebody sat by you on a plane? Somebody was by you on a bus? I mean, who did God use? Did God use a track? Somebody gave you a gospel track? Somebody took you through the Roman road? Somebody shared their personal testimony with you? Somebody told you about good news? Somebody asked you a question and started a conversation? A stranger walked up to you and just started asking you if you knew Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. God used somebody in your life to help you get to where you are. None of us got here by accident, and none of us got here by osmosis. God used people in our lives. I love this quote by Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, It wouldn't matter if Jesus had died a thousand times if no one ever heard about it. That's why we are to be witnesses. So look, God wants to use you. Philip in Acts chapter 8. He was willing to leave where he was having success and go somewhere where he didn't know what was going to happen. God used Philip. Ananias in Acts chapter 9. Now Ananias is not the one that led Paul to Christ. Paul came to a personal encounter of Christ on the road to Damascus, but he gets to Damascus and he meets a guy. I want you to put yourself in Ananias' shoes. The word has spread Saul is coming, and he's coming to kill Christians. Ananias is a believer. He gets on his computer, he checks his email that morning, and God says, Ananias, go to the street straight, and there you'll find Paul, and I want you to talk to him. Uh, Lord, uh, that's not the prospect card I was looking for. I was hoping to find somebody that's very actively involved in a really great church that would be easy for me to go talk to. Uh, he, He could kill me. God ever told you to talk to somebody and you were afraid to talk to them? That would have been Ananias. Ken Chafin called him the reluctant witness. (laughs) Reluctant is an understatement for him. I mean, he's going and he's willing to risk his life and he's willing to embrace Paul and bring him along in the faith. Peter in Acts chapter 10. Now, Peter has to die to his prejudices and his preconceived ideas. Chapter 10 and verse 14. Now remember, the issue is not food because God had said, you know, eat. The issue is not food here. The issue is the Gentiles. By the way, you're a Gentile. Unless you're a Jew, you're a Gentile. Everybody in the world is a Gentile except for the Jews. The rest of us are Gentiles. Doesn't matter what nation you're from, doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter where you were raised or how you were raised, we're all Gentiles. And so God said, eat, chapter 10, verse 14. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Now the Jews didn't eat bacon. That's sad to me. That's just, just really sad. They didn't, eat, they didn't eat unclean meat. And Peter had been raised all his life. Don't, don't eat that. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. And God appears to him and says, eat. Now, if I'd been Peter, I'd say, hallelujah to the Lamb of God. I mean, you know, not only do I eat to, get to eat, you know, a ribeye, now I can eat bacon. Go eat it. He had to change the way he was raised. Have you ever had to change the way you were raised? 
your parents ever raise you and you learned later on that really wasn't good that wasn't a way to think that wasn't the right attitude that wasn't the right spirit and if somebody says to you well that's the way I've always been they've never been a Christian because if you're the way you've always been because that's the way you're raised then you're using that as an excuse to keep from coming to Christ let me give you a definition of prejudice because Peter had to die to his Prejudice is a noun, an adverse judgment or opinion formed beforehand or without knowledge or examination of the facts. An irrational suspicion or hatred of a particular group, race, or religion. Chapter 10 and verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Romans 12 says God does not show partiality. J.D. Greer says this is a great statement. Those who really believe the gospel become like the gospel. Those who really believe the gospel become like the gospel. We live in a diverse city. We live in a diverse region. We live in a diverse country. By 2040, there will be no majority of any race in America. Every race in America will be a minority. Every race. There'll be no majority. So if a person lives and says, well, we're in the majority, everybody will do what we think, your day's running out. And I think it's a good thing. We live in a diverse city. None of us has any control over who lives in this city or in this region. We do have control how we treat them. We do have a control over whether we love them or not. We do have a control over whether we are the church that caringly and compassionately says to this community, there is hope in Jesus. We do have control over that. A few years ago, there was an earthquake in Los Angeles about 3 o'clock in the morning. And a man, after the earthquake had stopped and everything had stopped shaking, uh, he was driving across a bridge and he kept going across a bridge. And he noticed right in front of him the taillights of the car in front of him disappeared. And he came to a stop. And he got out of his car and he walked and he realized that there were several spans of the bridge that had collapsed during the earthquake. And he looked down and the car that had gone before him had gone over the edge and plunged 75 feet down into the water and everybody was dead. So immediately he started standing on that bridge and waving his hands and trying to get cars to stop. And four cars went by him, never stopping. They're just trying to get to the next place and they go by him and their taillights disappear and they go over the edge and their cars burst into flames and they die. The next one, same thing. The next one, the same thing. Four cars do it. He realizes that he's not getting anybody to stop. It's three o'clock in the morning. And so he sees a bus coming and he stands in the middle of the road where that bus could run over him 
and he starts waving and yelling for the bus to stop. And the bus driver slams on the horn and is honking the horn and honking the horn and finally realizes the man's not going to move. And he screeches to a halt and slides that bus to a halt. And he gets out and he starts yelling at the man for what he's doing. Then the man who's been standing there waving takes him over to the edge and points over the side and shows him what has happened to five cars that were on the road before him. The bus driver immediately gets in the bus and he angles that bus where nobody else can go across that bridge to their death. I just want to ask you a question. Who's standing in the road waving to the people in our region, stop. You're headed for a fiery pit. You're going to spend eternity in hell. If you don't stop, if you don't change, if you don't listen, you're going to die without Christ. Who is standing in the road and waving their hands at the risk of their own life to say, I need to tell people that there's danger ahead. And for every person in this community without Christ, there's danger ahead. The greatest problem this world faces is not terrorism. The greatest problem this world faces is a Christless eternity. And right now, if Jesus came back, five billion people, approximately, would spend eternity in hell. Think missions matters? You think evangelism matters? It does. It matters what we do. It matters that we talk to people. It matters that we love people. It matters that we pray for the homes in this community. I prayed this morning for the homes. It just so happened that today, it doesn't always happen. It just so happened that today, the five names that I pray for fell on the street where my neighbors are on each side of me. Before I ever preach this morning, I prayed for my neighbors. They're my responsibility. They walk their dogs in my neighborhood. They kids ride their bikes in my neighborhood. I see them at the mailbox. I wave at them when I'm driving by. But if they don't know Christ, they're going to die with a preacher in their neighborhood. your neighbors are going to die with a Christian in their neighborhood. And at the end of the day, there's no difference between a preacher and a Christian. We're all supposed to be standing and waving and saying, stop, stop in the name of Jesus. Stop. And listen before it's too late.